What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We would love to discuss that with you today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. If you'd like to be part of the program, the phone number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada, 833-288-3986. If you happen to be outside of the United States and Canada, we'd still like to hear from you. That number is one 205-271-2984. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. The email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. I'm sitting in for Tom Price. Michael's sitting in for Charles Beery. Matt Gubensky is screening your telephone calls. And Rich Jesse is handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, his name's on the show. Called to communion with Dr. David Anders. Dr. Anders, how are you? Jack, I'm fine. Thanks. How about you? Terrific. Thank you very much. Got an email here from Tom, and he says, Is it imperative that as Catholics we try to persuade our Christian friends to become Catholic? Well, it really depends on what you mean by persuade. I mean, if you if you mean uh, try to rhetorically engage them in debate— uh, to give them arguments and reasons to try to change their mind and to really occupy yourself, put a lot of anxiety and moral energy into turning them from one path to another path, then I would say I would say no. However, if you mean by persuade, I want my life to be persuasive. I want the witness of my life. And that that's the totality of life, not just my rhetoric, not just my verbal engagement, my dialectical, uh, 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 sort of aggressive, combative confrontation with my friends, but everything about me, which would include my language, my discussions, my intellect, but also my virtue, maybe the, the quality of my marriage and family, my, my, uh, the example I set in my ethical life at my job, my care for the poor, my demeanor, uh, my, the, the virtues that I exhibit and interiorize. If all of those things collectively are a witness to the truth of the Catholic faith, then you will be persuasive. You'll be persuasive. Here's the problem with thinking of persuasion towards the Catholic faith exclusively in that first way, that kind of, which is what we'd consider proselytism, the idea that I have to go out there and rhetorically combat people and defeat them verbally uh, and, and make a show of things. The problem with that is it, it tends to dehumanize the people that you're talking to. I mean, this is how I was when I was an evangelical Protestant, because I thought that that's what I had to do. I had to convince people, persuade people verbally to shift religions and to think the way I thought. And, uh, And I felt really guilty if I didn't. And what that did to me was make me think about every human engagement, every every human person that I would confront, 
in this kind of combative way. And I had a goal. My goal was to get them to think like me and to pray the sinner's prayer or sign their name on the dotted line. It was kind of like being the eternal Amway salesman, you know. Why why did you feel guilty if you didn't? Uh, Pretty much because the tradition I was raised in suggested that this was a profound moral duty that every evangelical Christian had, that, you know, so-called witnessing for your faith and making converts and leading people to Christ was just about the highest spiritual duty that I, that I had. And, and, of course, if I failed in it, then, then this person I was talking to would potentially go to hell for all eternity. So I felt like it was my job to make sure they got to heaven. Um, but ironically, that goal became more important than caring about their intrinsic humanity. So, I mean, I... I've told the story before. I, I remember a Catholic woman that I persuade to adopt an evangelical view of the Christian life and quote unquote pray the sinner's prayer. And to this day, I can't tell you her name or anything about her because at the time I didn't care. She was just a mark. She was like a carnival barker trying to attract a mark. You know, she was just an object to be manipulated to put a theological feather in my evangelical cap. And and that's so far from the attitude that Christ had towards people. Christ wanted to be with people in their integral humanity. He went and ate with sinners and fellowshiped with them and cared about them as human beings, and more or less was okay when they walked away from him. So he, he was present to them, and he demonstrated the kingdom of God to them, and he preached the truth to them, but he was not anxious about the question of, oh, maybe they're not going to follow me today. You know, he... he if you have to leave, leave. That was his attitude. But I'm going to be present to you in in all of my uh, divinity, which means in all of my love. And that's what we're called to be. Be like Christ in the way that he confronted the unbeliever or the sinner. You know, I think that that situation breeds other motivations as well. I was part of a charismatic campus ministry group, you know, and my motivation, yours was a little more pure than mine. My motivation, and I know the motivation of a lot of my counterparts in the same group were that when you gather together with these people later in the day, you better have a story to share about somebody you shared with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is a, <laughs> it is a mark of distinction, and there is a hierarchy of, 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 uh, of, of testimonies, right? And if you can come back and say, you know, that's why I wanted to convert that Catholic woman. Go back to the seminary and say, hey, I, I nabbed a Catholic. That, that's, that's pretty distinguished. Uh, uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big trophy that you've got there. You know, and it's interesting because, and I'm sure you found the same thing, but I love, you know, there was anxiety associated mm-hmm. with that. I love in the normal course of conversation discussing my Catholic faith with someone. Why do what That's we do, why right? I love, I love traveling with the friars. Oh, yeah. Because people will approach you. It's fabulous. They, they, they attract attention, <laughs> yeah, to be sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, what we do on this show is the way I want to do it. I want to invite people to talk to me, ask me questions, share my faith, but I leave the question of conversion up to God. Yeah. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We do ask that question, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? And, you know, I've always found it was my it was true in my own life, but I, I find it true, and, boy, just about everybody who's not Catholic has some sort of intrigue within them about the Catholic faith that you don't find with... The Catholic faith is mysterious. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. So if you've got a question for us, we'd love to hear it. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
Got a great item for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog, A Year in Art with St. Joseph. It's a Catholic calendar for 2024. And this beautiful liturgical calendar showcases graphics of St. Joseph as well as some of the titles that he is known under. Calendar pages include liturgical readings, new and traditional Catholic feast days, and holy days as well as secular holidays. Uh, and unique among some Catholic calendars, this one has the solemnities marked and highlighted separately in yellow. And color-coded fish, I've seen this on other calendars, will help keep you up with uh, obligatory feasts on the church calendar. Each month is marked with the church-designated devotion. And the calendar is about 11 inches by 16 and a half inches when it's opened up. And if you're looking for other images, visit EWTNRC.com to see all the beautiful calendars that they have uh, offered there, all at special discounted post-Christmas prices. They're available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up today is Raphael in Laredo, Texas, watching us on YouTube. Raphael, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, hello, Dr. Anders. How are you? Hi, doing great. Thanks. How about you? Uh, doing well. Merry Christmas. The reason I'm calling Dr. Anders is because I was blessed to be able to read the first letter of John. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the reading of the entire thing. But on uh, chapter 5, verse 8, I didn't. I, I, it says there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And I just wanted to know if you could help me incorporate it into the rest of the letter. <laughs> Why is that mentioned in the, in the middle of the letter like that? And it doesn't really fit in, like in my own mind. Uh, it doesn't really fit in uh, unless I'm missing something. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I, I will confess that this is a puzzling and enigmatic passage, and commentators have disagreed over its interpretation. So I, what I say is not going to be definitive, and you're, you're welcome to disagree with me, but I'll give you some thoughts about it. Um, when when St. John talks about bearing witness or testifying, he's talking about the, the, the Messiahship, the divinity of Christ and his ministry in our lives. So what makes Jesus's message authoritative? And uh, the Spirit, I think, is fairly self-evident within the context of the larger epistle, because the, the message of those who are born of God are led by God's Spirit, and they don't need anyone to teach them because they have an anointing within them that teaches them all things. That, that, that's a theme that recurs throughout the epistle. So the Spirit would here be the Spirit that is received by believers, a Spirit that's given through faith and that testifies. It's that, it's that, uh, that, prompt, that internal prompting of the Holy Spirit to the act of faith that makes the, fa the act of faith possible for us. Um, when he talks about the water and the blood— um, the blood here, I think, obviously refers to the blood of Christ, the, the blood that Christ shed, that the atoning sacrifice that he made for us. And uh, again, that's a testament to uh, what he did for us, also to his, uh, to his authority. Um, Christ's martyrdom is a profound sign of his, uh, of his divine mission, that he was willing to give himself in sacrifice for the sake of the world and undergo horrific torments. Uh, is explicable in terms of his of his uh, incredible fortitude and his fidelity to God and all the rest of it. Uh, the water is a bit more puzzling. Um, are we talking? Is this a reference to the humanity of Christ? Uh, you know, he was born in the normal way, and he was also 
uh, as a, of, a, of, a, of a human mother? Uh, is it a reference to um, the water of baptism that flowed from his pierced side when the water and blood flowed from Jesus when he was pierced on the cross? Um, uh, uh, th- that's a bit that's a bit trickier. Um, I think there are Catholic interpreters who understand the water and the blood here to be the water and the blood that flowed from his side. Um, and would indicate both his humanity and his divinity and the waters of baptism and, and his atoning death for us. But again, like I said, it, it is an enigmatic passage, and so I would, be, um, I would be overstating things if I said I had the definitive interpretation. God bless you, Raphael. Merry Christmas. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number asking that question. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 833-288-EWTN. Three nine eight six. Alan writes in, Why do Roman Catholics hold Thomas Aquinas in esteem when he advocated for heretics to be executed? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the fact that Catholics hold Thomas in esteem does not mean that every Catholic today is bound to hold every opinion that Thomas held. Uh, and in fact, when you read Thomas's most famous work, the Summa Theologica, Thomas doesn't agree with everything that Thomas says. You can find passages of the Summa where he will, he, he always gives out multiple opinions on a topic, you know, is this this or is this that? And he'll say, well, these authorities believe this and these authorities believe that. There's a couple passages where Thomas will say, well, you know, when I wrote my commentary on the sentences, I thought this, but now I think better. He himself would change his mind. So it doesn't imply that everything that Thomas said was correct or that he's infallible or anything like that. Now, we don't hold that about Thomas. Um, but uh, Thomas's theological method and the brilliance with which he executed it were absolutely exemplary. So as a model of doing Catholic theology, methodologically, the way he approached the question of faith and reason is a model. doesn't mean you have to hold every one of his conclusions. Uh, now, many of his conclusions are, of course, uh, very edifying and helpful, but not, but not all of them. Uh, he made a lot of prudential interventions, for example, questions of moral theology, uh, practical conclusions in moral theology that we might disagree with. The, the, his treatment of heretics would be one. Uh, another one would be Thomas's attitude towards the legality of prostitution. He, he thought that prostitution should probably be legal, even though he thought it was evil, uh, because he thought that, that trying to outlaw it would create greater harms. I think very few Catholic moral theologians would hold that opinion today, but they can understand why he came to that position. Um, you know, Thomas famously did not affirm the dogma of the Immaculate Conception before it was a dogma, of course. It hadn't been defined as a dogma. It was a theological opinion of the late Middle Ages, and Thomas dissented from that opinion. Um, and, of course, he was incorrect about that. So not everything he says was right. But as a, as a model for how you go about doing theology, how you think about the integration of faith and reason, uh, 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 the, the way he did metaphysics, those things are... Uh, quite authoritative for the way Catholic theology is to progress. I have an email from Beth, and she says, if conditional security of salvation is true, how do we know what secures our salvation? Okay, let me unpack the terms. So Catholics don't talk about our position with respect to God's grace in those terms. We don't speak about conditional security. That, 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 that's, a, that's a language that I think is derived from Protestantism, um, because the question of eternal security um, or, or assurance is, uh, is paramount in, 
in standard Protestant dogmatics. The, the, the Protestant wants to know, how do I know that I'm saved? And, uh, and the typical Protestant view is that a person can have absolute assurance that they are eternally secure in their salvation. If they have a genuine act of faith in Christ, then they know that whatever happens, whatever they may do in the future, um, they've got the get-out-of-hell-free uh, of card. They're going to go to heaven when they die. Um, and, then, and then trying to ask the question, well, how do Catholics approach that question of security? is to misconstrue the priority within Catholic theology, right? Uh, that's, that, see, for a Protestant, that subjective sense of am I okay is of paramount in, uh, importance, that, that, that inward, what Newman would call self-contemplation as a, uh, as a criterion of Protestant theology. Catholics start from a completely different point of view. Rather than navel-gazing and looking inward about, you know, how can I be sure I don't have this sort of, you know, neurotic fear of going to hell, the Catholics eyes are set on Christ. And and it's not so much the question, this anxious question of, am, am I going to go to heaven or hell? It's rather, who is Jesus my Lord and how can I best follow him? And we know how people get to heaven. They get to heaven by remaining in communion with Christ. And we have objective certainty. It doesn't require an inward focus of self-contemplation. We have objective certainty in the means of grace given to us by Jesus, namely the teaching of Christ himself, the teaching of the church that he founded, the sacraments that he instituted, uh, the conditions of the moral life that can be lived uh, charitably with the help of grace. All of those things we know with certainty. And and there's really no—it's not a big mystery if I'm in communion with Christ. I mean, Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life in you. But by my active participation in the life of the Catholic faithful— I have objective certainty that I'm in communion with Christ. When I go to confession and I confess my sins, the priest absolves me. I have objective certainty in the validity of that of that uh, proclamation of absolution. Um, so my focus is is not inward. It's not subjective contemplation. It's always contemplation of the objective mysteries of the Church in the sacraments and in its teaching. As long as I stay in fellowship with Christ in the Church and live the Catholic life with sincerity and and, and genuine effort then if I persevere in that, I'll be saved, right? The, 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 the condition is I have to persevere up to the end. Jesus said, Matthew 24, whoever perseveres to the end will be saved. So I don't know that I'll persevere, but it's, it's not a mystery if I'm persevering right now. I mean, like, you know, did you go to Mass on Sunday? You know, did you say your prayers? Are you going to confession? Do you have, you know, do you, are you conscious of faith? If I'm doing those things, then for now I'm persevering. Well, just keep doing that. You want to be sure you're going to go to heaven? Just keep doing that until you die. Uh, next up is John, a first-time caller driving through the great state of Wyoming, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you are on with Dr. David Anders. John, are you there? Oh, go ahead. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, my, my question is my, uh, my three, uh, I'm a cradle Catholic, my three kids, uh, we're raised as Catholics, but when we got up to the uh, point of uh, confirmation, they uh, turned down that uh, that uh, sacrament and have fallen away from the church. Uh, one of my daughters has married a, a Jewish man who's a very good guy and uh, a wonderful father for our two grandbabies, uh, two and five. But uh, I think he's a, I think he's pretty much a uh, atheist. And uh, my, my challenge is how do I approach him 
about the face. I was telling your screener that one thing that I do to try to reach out to all three of my kids is uh, I'm fond of the work of uh, of Matthew Kelly and his Decision Point Confirmation Program. <clears throat> and so two or three times a week, I will send a, a little sub-segment of that you know, it's like a 12-segment deal with uh, five or six sub-segments. I send them one of those, and uh, and I hope that they, you know, look at them and listen, but I don't bug them and say, did you get it or what do you think? I just don't want to do that. I just hope that they do. Well, John, let me let but me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question real yeah. quick, if I might. Um, right. Have have your daughter and son-in-law said that they want you to send them the the, the devotions from Matthew Kelly? Have they ever commented on them? Uh, yes, once. And it was my uh, son-in-law who said, I really would per- wish you would not send me that. Okay, then I, I, would stop, stop I would stop sending them immediately. I'd stop sending them okay. immediately. All right. Um, for and, for uh, everybody or just him? For everybody that doesn't want them. You know, and if okay. you if you that's feel if you feel inclined to send them, what I, what you might do is to take a poll and say, "Hey, folks, you know, I've been sending out these things. Do you want me to continue doing that? Is that of any benefit to you? And if and if not, let me know, and I'll I won't bother you with them. Um, and okay. and here's why. All right, um, I, I learned something uh, a vocabulary from the field of clinical psychology that I think is applicable here. I was listening to a psychologist one time explain why therapy often fails. Uh, people go to a therapist, they want to change. The therapist gives them good advice. They don't follow the advice and nothing changes in their life. And, and this fellow who was a pretty quantitative researcher and had data on this said uh, it's because of the phenomenon of resistance. And what resistance means is that even when you want something, when somebody else in your life tells you to do it, um, even if it's something that you know you ought to do, there's a part of you, and you could call it pride, I suppose, but there's a part of you that generally sort of rises up uh, irritably against that and says, you know, I'll be darned if I'm going to do it because you said so, even when it's in our best interest. And uh, and so, like in the clinical domain, there are people who go to therapists for help, and the therapist says, okay, this is what you need to do with your life. And the patient says, well, I'll be darned if I'm going to do it because you tell me to, and then they do the opposite. Um, and I think that's true. I mean, it's maybe true in therapy. I think it's true in evangelism enormously, that, that particularly unwanted proselytism, when somebody approaches you, sort of prods you about their religious beliefs, even if they're true religious beliefs, the tendency is to want to push back. You know, I mean, there's a part of me, it's kind of a pernicious part of me, that, uh, that sort of cynically enjoys being, being prodded by people that I disagree with in the religious domain. You know, they could be Protestants, they could be Mormons, they could be JWs or something, and there's a there's you know part of me that's like okay let's let's take the gloves off and see who can win this exchange you know that I don't regard that as a good thing about me but I understand that natural inclination and so I think when you when you send out these uh, these little missives that are that are unsolicited you're you're at risk not only of not helping them but perhaps of even driving them away or, or building up resistance. And then you don't know what they're saying when you're not around. They may be saying, oh, there's John with his, with his little Catholic devotionals again. And then they, then they stick you and your whole Catholic faith in a box that is derided behind your back, and they inoculate themselves even further against the possibility of listening to you. So what should you do instead, in my judgment, in my judgment? I think what you should do instead 
is focus on being as emotionally available and close and affirming to them as you can possibly be. Be the kind of person that they would be comfortable approaching under any circumstance for help or counsel or comfort without any sense of threat uh, or, or, or disapproval or judgment on your part. Only when you get that kind of openness and honesty and trust are you going to be able to share in an unfettered manner. 833-288-EWTN. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to hear your answer to that question. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Got an email here from Marshall, and he says, If Protestants believe that everything can be learned from the Bible alone, then why do they seek out Bible scholars to explain it to them? That is a really interesting point that you make, right? Um, so uh, let me answer that from two different points of view. If you go back to the 16th century, to the original Protestants, uh, in particular John Calvin, Calvin did not believe that the Bible was fully intelligible to every single Christian. Now, he, he may be construed that way by some people, but I assure you that's not what he thought. He was as Catholic as the Pope when it came to the question of the lay people needing authoritative interpretation. He just thought that his was the authoritative interpretation, not the Pope's. Uh, but he had a very high doctrine of the ministry, um, very high doctrine of ordination, and he thought that the common people needed to have the Word of God explained to them by authorities, um, except that the authorities in this case would have been Calvin himself and his associates. And so for Calvin, the idea of sola scriptura was not as much that every individual can plainly understand all of the Bible, but rather that the vernacular preaching of the Word of God by God's ministers would be sufficient to, to, uh, to bring about the salvation of souls. So it really had a much more liturgical setting and a much more kind of hierarchical um, ministerial orientation. And over time, that strong doctrine of ordination that you find in Calvin persisted in a, in a high doctrine of a learned ministry, all right? And so while the, the sort of the sacramentality of Protestant ordination began to fade from consciousness, the idea that a learned ministry was essential to the welfare of the faithful persisted and would have been, I think, the ideal for most Protestants, at least up into the 19th century. Um, so if you've ever studied Puritanism, for example, the, the, the ideal Puritan minister would be a scholar, uh, someone who had a really outstanding education in Greek and Hebrew original languages and was deeply learned in uh, in the history of theology. Um, and the ideal Puritan minister is someone that would have spent literally 40 hours a week or, or more in the study, poring over yellowed manuscripts and working out you know uh, very sophisticated theological sermons. And if you've ever read some of those sermons, go read Jonathan Edwards' sermons on justification for as an example. I mean, they read like, like uh, you know, doctoral theses, and the idea of the Puritan would be to sit there on backless benches in in the church in freezing cold New England weather, you know, for three hours while Edwards discoursed learnedly at you on on abstruse theological topics. So that that's a that's a part of the theological tradition, uh, going back all the way to the reformers. 
Now, there was a reaction against that, and, and there was a kind of populist dimension to Protestant spirituality that we see especially in the Second Great Awakening. And that's when you begin to find much more this idea that, you know, everybody has the Spirit of God, and they can all interpret the Bible for themselves. And, of course, it, it just led to infinite splitting of, um, of, uh, of Protestant denominations into so many, you know, tens of thousands of little of, uh, of, of, of permutations. Um, but there is this, there is a rather lengthy tradition in Protestantism of authoritative interpretation. Uh, and the way they would justify that would be, well, all the answers are in the Bible, and if somebody you know, say, understand the biblical languages and the theological tradition, then uh, then the Bible is all you need. But but you know, it may not be safe for the layperson. Um, and they, and there is a populist reaction against that also within Protestantism. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Eric writes in: Why do Catholics believe that Mary is co redemptrix? Right. I appreciate the question. So, again, kind of depends on the, uh, how you use the terms. I mean, it depends on what you mean by co-redemptrix. depends on what you mean by believe. Um, the, 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 the doctrine that Mary is co-redemptrix is not a dogma of the faith, and so no Catholic is bound by divine authority to believe that God has revealed that Mary is co-redemptrix. And, and uh, I mean, the, the Church has looked very specifically into this question, uh, particularly during the pontificate of John Paul II, who clearly believed himself that Mary was co-redemptrix, and he puzzled over the question of whether or not it should be made a dogma of the faith and, and came down solidly on the side that it should not be defined as a dogma of the faith. So it is a theological opinion. Catholics are not bound to hold it, and a Catholic you know, doesn't have to affirm that. Now, if I were going to defend the doctrine, even though I'm not obligated to, uh, I would argue something like this. Um, Jack, who is sitting across from me right now, is co-redeemer with Jesus. That That is a theological fact in this respect. Um, through Jack's virtue, through his prayers, through his intercessions, he can become an instrument, a medium for transmitting grace to other people. He could pray for the salvation of souls. He could offer masses for the salvation of souls. He could offer up his own suffering for the salvation of souls. And those sacrifices can be efficacious. It is a principle of sacred scripture from Genesis to Revelation that the righteousness of the few can avail for the salvation of the many. We see that story over and over and over again. I think the first time it comes out really clearly is in Genesis 18, where uh, Abraham is in dialogue with God, and Abraham says, if I can find ten righteous people in the city of Sodom, will you refrain from destroying it? God says, yes, for the sake of the ten, I'll spare the many. We find the same thing in the account of the Exodus after the business with the golden calf, and God says, I'm going to wipe out Israel. And Moses says, well, please don't, for my sake and the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, okay, for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my promises to them and to you, I will not wipe out Israel. Uh, think about the ending of the book of Job, uh, where God is upset with Job's companions, and he says to them, do not pray and offer sacrifice to me. I won't listen to you, but ask my servant Job to offer sacrifices, and I will listen to him. Again and again and again. St. Paul says, I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. So it is a, it is a principle of 
biblical theology and Catholic theology that our prayers, our merits, our virtues, our sacrifices can be helpful not only for ourselves but for others. Now, if that's true for little old me and little old Jack, um, that all of us can share in the redemption of Christ in this way, how much more would the righteousness and the holiness and the purity of the mother of God avail for the salvation of the many? Uh, it would do so to a superordinate degree. She would be the preeminent example of someone who cooperated with the grace of Christ on behalf of the church. And so for that reason, Catholics devotionally will refer to her as co-redemptrix with a kind of capital C, capital R, but understanding the theology that, that every, every Christian is, in fact, a kind of co-redeemer with Jesus. Now, Jesus is unique in his sacrifice. It's only because of the grace of Christ that we have this privilege of cooperating, uh, but we all do so. Mary would do so to a superordinate, supereminent degree. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Paul wants to know, how can I explain that Vatican II was a valid council that should be obeyed and not just a mistake? Yeah, well, how about the fact that the Pope and the bishops all say it's a valid council that should be obeyed and not just a mistake, right? So, you know, there was a, there was a group in 4th century North Africa called the Donatists, and they uh, believed that they were the only real Catholics. And uh, it had to do with the question of who had lapsed during the Decian persecution. And they thought that in order to have a valid ministry, you, you had to have a priest um, who had been ordained by a bishop, who'd been ordained by a bishop, who had never lapsed. And so they would, it wasn't just apostolic succession. It was like apostolic succession plus a kind of succession of moral purity was required for, for valid sacraments. Um, and, uh, and so they thought that they were the only people that had that, and mainstream Catholics didn't have it. Um, and uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, was the great opponent of the Donatists, and uh, he uh, famously wrote, uh, the verdict of the whole world is conclusive, by which he meant, you guys are just in North Africa. You cannot, by definition, be the Catholic Church, which means universal, because you're, you're, just, you're just in North Africa. But all the bishops throughout the world are against you. Right? And it is the consensus of the Catholic faithful represented in the bishops in communion with the Bishop of Rome that constitutes uh, the authority of the Church and points to the deposit of faith we should all believe. So when all the bishops and the Pope are together on something, that's kind of what it means to be a Catholic. To go along with that when that happens just is what it means to be Catholic. So if you, if you start saying that I myself, you particularly, in your own private judgment can decide which councils are valid and which are not, then you're no longer Catholic. You're now a Protestant because you've made private judgment the principle of Catholic identity. Your private judgment that the Second Vatican Council is invalid or illicit uh, takes precedence, in your opinion, over the authority of the popes and the bishops. Vatican II was the best represented, most ecumenical council in, in the, the history of the Latin Church. I mean, there, there never was a, a council that had more Episcopal involvement uh, and, uh, and of course, the, the, the Pope at the time who called it, uh, John Twenty-third, uh, his, his successor, uh, Paul VI, and every Pope since, and all the bishops in communion with them affirm that this is, in fact, a council of the Church. You dissent from that, you're no longer a Catholic, now you're a Protestant. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Dave, a first-time caller in Toledo, Ohio, listening on Annunciation Radio. David, thanks so much for the phone call today. You're on with Dr. Anders. Dr. Anders, first of all, thank you. Um, 
I happen to be a Protestant uh, listening to your show frequently as I'm in the car, and uh, I find uh, a lot of good information, whether I agree with everything or not, doesn't matter. There's a lot of good information coming from you, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. You may have just answered the question on this last call, I don't know, and or you may have answered it uh, recently, but um, I just changed two years ago from a Protestant denomination that's changing from what they're, um, they originally have written, and the church is actually splitting pretty well down the middle right now. I went with an organization with a uh, um, Protestant denomination that does believe what I say, think the Bible says, and has stuck to that, even though the world seems to be going the other direction. Now I see, or I read, that the Pope seems to be vacillating on many of these same issues, and, um, it, you know, if you would join the Catholic Church, if I would think of doing that, if he would rule on something like that that I don't agree with, if he would rule on something I don't agree with, um, is there a part of the Catholic Church you can stay with, or are you just going to be excommunicated, or what happens? Sure, sure, and I'll sure. I'll be quiet now. Yeah, I totally understand the question. I totally understand the question. So... Uh, I have a lot to say about this issue. First of all, in the previous call when I said that to be Catholic is to follow the Pope and the bishops when they're in agreement, um, that's true, uh, but there's a nuance that I didn't mention in the last call. Catholics distinguish between uh, several categories of theological belief. I'm going to give you two of them. Uh, We distinguish the category of dogma from the category of theological opinion. When it comes to a matter of dogma— Catholic is bound uh, by divine authority to affirm a dogma. And the dogmas are things like the dogma of the Trinity, the dogma of the Incarnation, the dogma of the existence of God, the dogma that Christ founded the Church and the sacraments, the, the dogma of the necessity of grace for salvation. These are dogmas of the faith. There is no wiggle room on dogmas. You either affirm the dogma and you're a Catholic, or you deny the dogma and you're a heretic, period. When it comes to matters of theological opinion— Catholics can hold divergent views. They can think one another wrong, in fact, and and not have to leave the Church over that disagreement. There's a famous example of this in the 16th century, when the Dominican order, a Catholic religious order, and the Jesuit uh, Catholic religious order disagreed profoundly over a substantive issue in the doctrine of grace. And they both took their complaints to the Pope— And the Pope listened to them, and he said, well, I will let you know when I've made my decision, Now shut up and go back and teach theology and leave each other alone. And that happened 500 years ago, and the Pope still hasn't said anything. In other words, the Pope decided not to decide. And so that issue that still divides Jesuits from Dominicans to this day, uh, a Catholic can hold either opinion, either one. And, And there are lots of areas like that where Catholics can hold different points of view. Let me draw another distinction for you. That's the distinction between... A, uh, a, a, a statement of faith and morals on the one hand, and that's the kind of thing that might be subject to dogmatic definition, and then a, a, a judgment of pastoral prudence, right? So let me give you, trivially, trivially, you know, a dogma, again, would be like, say, something like the doctrine of the Trinity. A judgment of pastoral prudence might be something like, well, are we going to have the women's Bible study on Wednesday night or Thursday? Okay. Obviously, there's no truth of the faith that's at issue in the question of holding the women's Bible study on Wednesday night or Thursday. But somebody has to decide that. And in the Catholic Church, that'd be the pastor of the local parish. 
He has the authority to decide, it is going to be Thursday, end of story. Now, if you're a Catholic in that parish and you think Thursday's a stupid night to have the women's Bible study, it ought to be Wednesday, it's not a question of, of, of belief, it's a question of obedience. I might think the pastor is totally out of his head and he made a really dumb decision because that conflicts with some other thing that I think is important. But that'd be a matter of holding the pastor to be imprudent rather than theologically wrong. Um, and, uh, and you can hold the church authorities to be imprudent very often. I mean, it, you probably couldn't think that they were imprudent in everything, but to hold that a particular judgment of the pope or a bishop or a pastor would be imprudent, yeah, you can absolutely do that, no problems. And, uh, and in fact, let me add another nuance to you. A pope or a council could define a dogma, and then you would be obliged to hold that it was true, but you would not be obliged to hold that it was prudent to issue the definition. So there can be true things that you might think should be letter, better left unsaid. That's a, that's a very fine distinction when you think about it. There was a famous case in the 19th century uh, of a theologian named John Henry Newman who, regarding the dogma of papal infallibility, when the Church defined that dogma at the First Vatican Council, he said, well, I believe the dogma to be true. I think it was imprudent to define. I think the Pope made a mistake to define it. And Newman's a saint, and he may be a doctor of the church one day. He's regarded as a theological authority. That, that's the level of nuance. And so there's lots of room for a lay Catholic to disagree with a pope, uh, to take issue with a council, um, to have a problem with a bishop or a pastor. But you have to attend to these kinds of distinctions. It, it, with what exactly are you disagreeing? Um, now, when you discuss Pope Francis and his recent interventions, I, I suspect from the context that you're probably referring to discussions about issues of human sexuality. And I, I would like to add that I have seen a lot of news coverage of this, this issue in recent weeks that has radically misconstrued what the Pope actually said and what the, what the Vatican has said on this issue. In fact, the Pope has repeatedly affirmed the traditional dogma on the exclusivity of the male-female procreative union as, uh, as, as valid marriage, on the uh, intrinsic immorality of sexual activity outside of marriage, on the absolute impermissibility of anything like homosexual marriage, uh, and has strictly forbidden priests or deacons or any minister of the Church to offer any kind of uh, ritual or blessing or, or liturgical act that would seem to confute uh, homosexual relations with, with, uh, with heterosexual marriage, um, and has specifically said that they may not bless homosexual unions as such. Now, that may be not what you have heard, uh, but you haven't read the document if you, if, you've, if you believed otherwise. Now, what the Pope did say was that uh, a homosexual person who requests a blessing from a priest can, in fact, receive a blessing from a priest. That, that's really always been the case, right? I, I think the only thing that's changed is the Pope wrote a document, but he didn't change the moral teaching of the Church, uh, even though the usual suspects want to construe him as having changed the teaching of the Church. Does that add some clarity, David? It, yes, it definitely does. Uh, and I did read it that way recently, um, that the Pope remained very strong in his conviction there. Um, it, it's just that, you know, I had left a, a Protestant denomination for that very reason, and they have obviously really changed. And uh, 
I didn't want to move in another direction and find myself right back in the same thing. So sure. thank you. Yeah, That's absolutely. Now, one last comment I might make. Uh, you, uh, you noted at the beginning that you had left one denomination for another because the second denomination taught what you believe the Bible said. All right. And I understand that disposition, and that, you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do. But you take note that what it has the final authority here in your mind is your interpretation of the Bible. It, it's, it's your view of what the Bible says becomes the criterion by which you select a denomination. I understand that position. The Catholic begins from a different point of view. Um, you know, imagine a Protestant who said, well, it's my private judgment to determine which books of the Bible I'll listen to. Well, most Protestants wouldn't do that. They'd recognize that at least the Bible itself was a kind of external authority to my private judgment. Even if it's my control of the Bible, still the Bible has a kind of external authority that I'd have to adhere to, and it wouldn't be up to me to say, well, hey, I, I don't like the book of Romans, so I'm going to throw it out. Most Protestants wouldn't do that. That same disposition of implicit faith in the Bible that's where the Catholic is with respect to the Church. The Catholic just says, you know, the Church is the rule of faith, not the Bible. And just as the Protestant wouldn't take it upon himself to say, throw out a book of the Bible, a Catholic is not going to take it upon himself to say, throw out a council of the Church. Um, I don't know if you were aware or not, everybody out there listening, that EWTN actually has a nightly news program on EWTN television. It's EWTN News Nightly. It airs at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. And if you haven't checked it out, tonight would be a great time to do so. They're having a special uh, on Pope, Pope Benedict um, Emeritus, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, his anniversary, the anniversary of his death, uh, be one year ago in a couple days last year. At the age of 95, following a brief illness, scholars, experts, and friends of the late Pope are gathering near St. Peter's Basilica to discuss his impact on the Church and society. When it comes to Catholic thought, he will long be considered a gift to Church theologians. That's EWTN News Nightly tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Don is in Virginia listening on Guadalupe Radio. Don, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders, uh, I wanted to ask you a question. I, I, I want I, I always listen to your show. I would suspect maybe four out of five days a week for at least the last six years or so, and I really enjoy it. I want to echo the previous caller uh, saying that uh, that you may or may not agree with all, everything, but uh, it, it's great information and a great education that I've received over the many years, and uh, I, I, I really enjoy it. I, I, I'm on a, I hunger to learn all about God's Church. Uh, historically, I have been a Protestant, and I suspect that I still am. Um, but my question is, and, 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 and I really enjoy the Catholic tradition and the Catholic Church, and um, am thinking about joining the Catholic Church, and I, I, I have a, I have a problem with purgatory, and I want to know is, is purgatory? The previous caller's question is: Is this part of you know whatever what the previous caller was asking about? Is is that? You know, uh, tradition with will, will that change? Will that viewpoint that he brought up change? Yeah. And if so, if you disagree with it, what would happen? My, my 
my question is the same question applying to purgatory, and a follow-on question is, uh, is purgatory the Catholic teaching, or is it dogma? I understand, I understand. If you don't mind, let me ask you a question real quick before we dive into the purgatory business. Do you think that when people get to heaven that they are still stained with actual sin? I, w- I wouldn't say no. Yeah, so the, the saints in heaven, the souls in heaven are holy, right? They don't have any sin about them. you agree with that? I definitely agree with right. that. Do you think that if a person dies, and with their dying breath, that they have some remnant of clinging to sin about them, that between the moment of their physical death and their arrival in heaven, that something changes in their moral disposition so that if they may die with some kind of attachment to sin, but by the time they get to heaven, even if that's instantaneous, something has happened that has changed their disposition to where it is now impossible for them to sin. Would you agree with that? I would. Okay. So that that's the Catholic view, right? That That in this life... Even with grace, it's possible for us to sin. In the next life, in glory, it is impossible for us to sin. So so, between physical death and arriving at the vision of God, something has changed in the human person. Something has changed in the human person. We don't end up in heaven in exactly the same metaphysical condition in which we left this earth. Um, uh, What the Catholic proposes is the mechanism for understanding that transformation. Now, I've never met a Protestant who disagreed with those two points that I make, that, that we die with some ability to sin, we arrive in glory without the ability to sin. Purgatory is the mechanism for, for that transformation. Purgatory is a dogma, meaning we're obligated to believe it, but I wish I had more time because there's a lot of things that are popularly believed about purgatory that the Church does not define and do not have one does not have to believe. There's a Catholic named Catherine of uh, Genoa, for example, that I'm very fond of, who understands purgatory to be the fire of the love of God, which I find to be a very attractive uh, image. The idea of seeing God and in that glorious vision, in that moment, the love of God purging me, even painfully perhaps, from every attachment to sin. That's an intelligible doctrine of purgatory that's fully Catholic. This is EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Back at it next week. Actually, Thanks, tomorrow. God bless.